Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, February 16th, the Teenage Life Coach Edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate and the dad of Eliza, age six, and Leo, who is two and a half. Next time, we'll be saying goodbye to Allison Benedict. Uh, but this time, I'm here with Rebecca Lavoy, a writer and the host of the podcast Crime Writers On. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. I feel a little bit like the Anderson Cooper to your Kelly Ripa right now. It's exciting for me. I'm just thrilled to be Kelly Ripa to anyone's Anderson <laughs> Cooper, to be honest. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, about your family. Well, I have two kids of my own, um, Henry and Teddy. Henry is 15 and a half. Teddy is 14. I also have a lovely 16-year-old stepdaughter, Lily, so I have a, a little bit of a brood here. Um, as you may have guessed by the step, I am remarried, so our family is a little bit of a blended one, and it's a pretty exciting times around our house. We're, you know, pretty busy. We both have day jobs and do a couple of podcasts, so um, yeah, it's um, quite the melee around here sometimes. And are your kids uh, living with you full-time, or do they go back and forth with other parents, or how does it work? They actually, my kids uh, and their dad, um, their dad lives about two miles from us. So we have a week on, week off parenting arrangement. We've been doing that for years. I mean, my kids, we got divorced when my kids were four and six. So it's been, you know, almost a decade that they've been living this way. Um, and 
honestly, this is maybe maybe one of the more controversial points of view I have about this, but um, the week on week off parenting lifestyle is really, really wonderful in a lot of ways. I call it the hidden benefit of divorce Um, uh, in one sense, because you can cram all of your work and activities into the week you don't have your kids, but that also you really do develop a different perspective on who your kids are as people when you have a little distance from them in between like the time that you do spend together. So, you know, it's definitely influenced my parenting style and my thinking about raising kids for sure. And how about your stepdaughter? Is she with you the whole time? She's not with us nearly as often as the boys are. She lives about 45 minutes away. She goes to, she's in high school and she's very, very busy. So, you know, the traditional sort of uh, every other weekend and weeknight thing is now kind of a slave to how busy she is and when we can just see her. So sometimes we see her a lot. Sometimes we don't see her as much. Um, It's great having her around. I I love when she can be here, but it's inconsistent right Mm. now. A thing that I have, you know, my kids are much younger than yours. And so I, uh, my older uh, daughter is six years old and, and I'm still sort of getting into the swing of like, okay, now I guess I'm a parent literally all the time. <laughs> um, and a thing that I have said to my wife and now I suppose to the audience of Slate's Parenting Podcast is that it would be nice if you could be a parent only some of the time, but not the rest of the time. Um, and, and it sounds like you have that arrangement in a way, although I suppose and- also you're always a parent. Yeah, I mean, you are always a parent in terms of the way that you are, you know, thinking about your kids. And there, of course, are responsibilities that carry through on the weeks that they're not actually physically here um, in terms of communication and school events and sports and all that stuff. But yeah, I actually don't disagree with you at all. And I think that one of the things that I've kind of taken away from this and a piece of advice I would give other parents who don't have my situation is to absolutely do the... Um, I call it the oxygen mask and the airplane lifestyle of parenting, where there's a reason why you put the oxygen mask on yourself first or why they tell you to do that. And it's because you have to be alive and um, vital in order to do anything for your kids. So, you know, I would if I were you try to build in more of that time, get really comfortable with the babysitters on care.com, find a couple that you love, pay them really, really well the first time they come over and then they'll be available anytime you call them after that. And, uh, you know, Take some time off from being a parent. There's no shame in that. I like that. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do that, and there's not going to be any shame in it. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm glad you're going to be with us for today's show. Uh, we have a great show lined up today. We'll be talking about a new study by three economists who found that power within the family increasingly resides not with the parents but with the children. And then we will talk about the problem of homework. Why? Do I have to teach my kid math? Isn't that the school's job? I don't really get it. Plus, parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a call from a listener whose son won't stop picking on his younger brother. Uh, But first, some announcements. The first announcement I want to make is about next show. The next show will be our last to feature Allison Benedict. Um, I would like you to post on our Facebook page. Uh, and tell us about the great times that you have had listening to Alison Benedict, the things that you remember, your favorite Alison Benedict moments, her triumphs, her fails that have become yours. Facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Go there, like it, tell Alison what you will remember, uh, the things that she's done that you hope to emulate and the things that she has done that you hope never, ever to emulate. <laughs> I have another request for you. Um, This was Allison's idea for a a topic that she wants to do on her last show. 
She wants to hear from you. And she wants to hear your strategies for making parenting work, the little things you do to get the kids out of the house every morning, the little things you do to get them to bed at night, the things that make your life easier or even just manageable. Um, Give us a call. Leave us a message at 424-255-7833 and tell us your parenting strategies, tips, and hacks, the things that you think every parent should know and do. Um, and in a couple of weeks, Allison and I will listen to them and tell you if we think that they are brilliant, uh, or, uh, uniquely adapted to your situation and of no use to anyone else or indeed, uh, worthless or harmful. So, uh, call in and, and let us know. Uh, and finally, by way of announcements, um, if you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, you should join Slate Plus where you will get extended versions of this and other great Slate podcasts along with a host of other benefits. You can join for just $49 a year or $5 a month by going to slate.com slash plus. That address again is slate.com slash plus. Today, we will be hearing from Allison Benedict herself on the Slate Plus segment. Okay triumphs and fails. Rebecca, you go first. Do you have a triumph or a fail for us today? I'm going to categorize this one as a triumph, although other parents might feel differently when they hear my story. (laughs) Um, So a couple of weeks ago, the weekend of January 22nd, 23rd, 24th, right after the inauguration, was my younger son's 14th birthday. And as you can maybe surmise by the fact that I said that uh, I got divorced when the kids were four and six, throwing birthday parties, which before I got divorced was always sort of a family enterprise, became really complicated for a lot of years when the boys were young. We tried to do it jointly, my ex-husband and I, for a couple of years. It was super awkward. So the tradition of the regular kind of birthday party, have friends over, do stuff, kind of fell by the wayside and the expectations for that fell by the wayside as a result. So the kids have been used to, for instance, you know, if they're with me and it's their birthday, maybe we'll just take a couple of friends out to dinner or go skiing or just do some sort of discreet activity that you can use to take, you know, one car to get to. So really scaled back with this whole tradition came a lot of guilt on my part because, you know, throughout the years, my kids have been going to birthday parties. And I just sort of think like, it's just not what we do. They're missing out. Um, And then add to that the fact that boys, I don't want to categorize all boys this way, but certainly the ones I live with are just terrible at communication, terrible at planning. They don't seem to understand that They just can't come home from school one day and say, hey, I want to have my birthday party tomorrow and expect there to be 12 kids there. So a lot of factors going into like the birthday fails up to this year. Um, What happened this year was that my son, about a week prior to his birthday, did what he typically does, came home from school and said, like, I have this great idea. My best friend, Tommy, his birthday is the same day as mine. And a bunch of us, we were talking in the lunchroom today. We want to go to this like trampoline park. Uh, you know, which is in a town down the street from where we live. And I just thought like, my first thought was like, this isn't going to happen. Like every year it never happens. So why would it happen this year? But then I thought, you know what? Like, why not? <laughs> so um, kind of dug through the school directory, found Tommy's n- n- mom's phone number, gave her a call. She was also at work. She also does a bunch of things and she's very busy. And we just sort of decided to 
divide and conquer. So like she would handle the trampoline park part of things, pile the kids in their minivan, take them. And then we would do at our house the um, cake, pizza, hanging out part. So I ended up sort of divvying up the responsibility, only taking half of it, baked a cake. um, And then like in a stroke of genius, decided I'm going to go to the dollar store and buy all the crap that I haven't been buying for my kids' birthdays for the last, like, 10 years. So I got noisemakers and balloons and party hats and, like, dumb beaded necklaces and a banner that said, like, happy birthday and, like, the dumb candles with the numbers that you put on the cake. And we did it up. And um, the boys came back from their trampolining, all seven or eight of them. They were smelly. It was horrible, disgusting. Sent them all downstairs with all this food, all these decorations and these goodie bags, And then they partied for three hours while my husband and I drank cocktails and watched CNN upstairs. It was basically a triumph on every front as far as I'm concerned. My my son was thrilled. We were relaxed. It was all good. Bravo. (laughs) That thing of the dollar store, there's a thing that I keep running into, which is that like as adults, we now live in a kind of post-scarcity society as far as material crap is concerned like it's yep. and and so when i see a bunch of like plastic garbage that literally like at a dollar store like this is there's just more of this physical stuff than our society knows what to do with and i just my impulse is like <laughs> get this away from me <laughs> having a, a sane mature responsible life involves keeping this crap out of my house and yet children there's something innate in children that I assume is biologically human that says that like the acquisition of stuff is a good thing, that like the desire to like get a thing, even if the thing is just worthless junk that they would have no intrinsic interest in. And you can see why in the, in the ancestral environment or the African savanna or whatever, it would be like evolutionarily adaptive to like, just want to get as much plastic crap as you possibly could (laughs) and hoard it all. Um, And so, yes, it makes sense to me that going to the dollar store and just buying a ton of junk would would require you to to overcome your instincts, but then would also thrill your your children, even even a, a young teenage child. Um, wow, that got really deep. That I, well, got really, really philosophical and deep. You, t- you, <laughs> you, you, you touched on something that I guess has been sort of building in the back of my head for a long time. And, and I'm just happy that um, I could finally share it with you. And again, the listeners to Mom and Dad are Fighting Slate's Parenting Podcast. I have a thing that I'm, I'm not 100% sure if it's a triumph or a fail. I, I mean, I really like... This is one of those ones where it's hard for me to take full responsibility because I feel like I was tricked into something, but I feel like I was tricked into a fail. Okay, so are you telling me that I have the agency to be the judge over whether or not this is a triumph or a fail? I submit myself to your judgment. Uh, we've been reading, this is Eliza and I, uh, I've been reading a series of books at night. I've, I've mentioned them on the program before. It's the Clementine books written by Sarah Pennypacker. Do you know these books? Nope. They're probably, well, you have boys, and so you wouldn't have, <laughs> have read them for that reason. Think of a contemporary Bezos and Ramona series. Okay, that's a perfect cultural touchstone to sure, uh, align me with your Ramona. story. I Absolutely. W- I will say, having reread Bezos and Ramona recently with her right before we did this, they're not at that level. Like, they're they're pretty good, <laughs> but but they're not at the Beverly Cleary level. Beverly Cleary, I, I mean, and you're a, a fiction writer, and, and so maybe you have an opinion on this, but I think of Beverly Cleary as, like, really one of the fundamental novelists of 20th century America and one of the creators of what we now think of as contemporary MFA-style fictional third-person close interiority. 
But in any case, these books are not at that level. Um, but they're nice, and we have enjoyed reading them. And we read, there's seven books in the series, and we read six of them, and now we're on book seven, Completely Clementine. And I thought, okay, this will be how Eliza and I say goodbye to this beloved character and series of books. And then, like, right at the beginning of the book, it becomes clear that one of the three main sort of narrative threads of Completely Clementine, book seven in the Clementine series, is Clementine becomes very upset about the feelings of the animals that her family has been eating and becomes vegetarian and tries to get her whole family to go vegetarian. I did not need that in my kid's bedtime <laughs> reading, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it's, six years old is a great age to become sentimental about eating animals. And, uh, you know, we are, I'm a meat eater, my wife also a meat eater, and my children are being raised as meat eaters. And, um, it, you know, this was a thing that, like, I didn't need the Clementine book to introduce the sentimentality about the cow that goes in the meatloaf. I just really didn't need that. Uh, and so it, it, it started, I start as I began reading, like I, you know, there's the scene where they go on the school trip to the farm and I started to worry a little bit and then I realized where it was going and I started trying to, you know how you sometimes edit books on the fly for little kids, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you can't really do that for a six-year-old because a six-year-old is on to you. And I started like skipping paragraphs or like trying to revise things. But then it's like Clementine is sad and I don't really have a good, like within the narrative explanation for why Clementine is sad. And, and she knows something is wrong. And I said, okay, well, I think we have to stop reading there. Good night. And I like sort of rushed her off to bed. And then she wanted to pick it up again the next night. And I said, like, I think this one is too grown up for you. I think, you know, because you know some things are too grown up for her. So I tried to move it into the too grown up category. But she's read literally six of the seven Clementine books. Why is book seven going to be full of, like, sex and violence or whatever? It doesn't pass the smell <laughs> test, even for a six-year-old. Um and so eventually I, I had to explain it to her and say, well, you know, it's about eating animals and she feels sad about eating animals and we eat animals and I didn't want you to feel sad about eating animals. And so I thought maybe it wasn't a appropriate book for us to read, but we can still read it if you want. And I hope you understand that our family eats animals and some families don't, you know that, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in any case, it, it I said to her, I will read this book with you, but I don't want to get into a whole big thing with you about eating animals. And she said, okay, that's fine. I don't need to get into a whole big thing about eating animals. And she hasn't brought it up since. And we are now two thirds of the way through the book and she is enjoying the book and has not brought up any of that stuff, but you never know. So is this a triumph or a fail? It is a unparalleled triumph. And here's why. I, I like where you... this is going. <laughs> You had a desired outcome, and I appreciate that when you're telling this story, you are honest about the fact that while you told her, um, and you were sort of framing it initially as, I don't want you to be sad about X, Y, or Z, you're being honest with yourself that you really just don't want to have the freaking conversation with your six-year-old about your dietary lifestyle because you know you're not going to change it. So it's like... That's not an area that you are willing to go for the sake of finishing this book series. So I think you have like your purpose for why you need to achieve this goal, which is to either not read the book or read it and have it not be a thing. Right. Right. 
you were transparent with her after initial some initial whitewashing, which I will say, um, you know, failed I, attempt I was, at whitewashing. <laughs> you sort of tried to like, uh, you know, message that a little bit. Like the trick I used to say to my kids, but when they were younger than six, is that Target is closed, so no, we can't go there. And for many many years, they did believe that big box stores would sometimes be closed, like on Saturdays, which clearly was a lie. Um, but you then changed your strategy and you were transparent. You were saying, hey. This is why I don't want to do this. I don't want it to be a thing. And if you can agree with me that it's not going to be a thing, let's forge on. And she entered into that very, very grown up agreement with you that was based on something true. And she's keeping up her end of the bargain. So I'd say so, it was a huge triumph. Thank you so much. Uh, she's keeping You're it welcome. Up. She's keeping it up so far. Um, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that feels triumphant to you. Um, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So who rules the household? Who's in charge? If you asked a Victorian, he would say it's the father. If you asked a sitcom husband, he would say it's the mother. But a new paper by three economists suggests that it's actually the children. The paper is called When Children Rule, Parenting in Modern Families. Uh, joining us today is one of the authors of that study, Gustavo Torrens, an assistant professor of economics at Indiana University. Uh, Gustavo Torrens, thank you so much for joining us. Can you walk us through your argument? Why are children becoming more powerful in the family? Well, okay, thank you very much uh, for the invitation. So, um, well, the, the, the idea is uh, is the following. So, there, there are essentially two big changes in, in families. So one big change is that families uh, tend to have uh, less uh, kids. And the second one is that uh, families used to be a very unequal, unequal environment in which uh, men used to have uh, much more earning, uh, earning power than women, and that's not true anymore. So now um, wife and husband, or both, both parents in, in the household, has more or less the, the, the same income. So the, the idea is that these uh, two things uh, essentially conspire uh, against parents and in favor of the children. The idea is that if there are fewer children in the, in the household, uh, then they compete less for the resources of the household, and as a consequence, they, they gain power, and they can do better. Uh, in terms of how much they get of the resources of the of the family, and at the same time, uh, in, in traditional families in the old days, uh, the the father uh, concentrated a, a lot of income, and as a consequence, he had a lot of power. And now, uh, both parents uh, have income, and they can use that income essentially to compete for the love and respect for their children, and this also. Uh, help uh, children to improve uh, their bargaining position, if you want, within the household. So about that that second factor, that mothers are, are now making more money than they used to, and so the, the earnings gap between fathers and mothers is smaller than it used to be. I can see how that makes the mother more powerful, but can you explain how does that make the children more powerful? Well, uh, 
so essentially the idea is that uh, in some sense the parents they have a cooperative behavior toward the children both parents probably they want their kids to do well in school for example but at the same time there is some dimension in which uh, they compete each other so essentially uh, one parent uh, maybe wants to push children in one direction the other parent wants to push children in the other direction uh, in that dimension, parents, they can use uh, their income or their resources essentially to push kids in the direction that they want. And of course, if one of the parents uh, didn't have income, uh, this was much uh, more difficult to, to produce competition between the parents. And right now that both have independent sources of income, kids use this uh, and push parents to essentially uh, compete each other uh, and they are, in some sense, they use this to get uh, more resources from their parents, no? I think most parents would like to think that they're not competing with their spouse for the kid's affection, or, or they would <laughs> like to think that they're doing that as little as possible. Um, I think when, when my wife and I, um, you know, when we notice that um, one of us is like giving the kids a treat and the other one has said no treats, then we try to present a united front. We try to stay like, um, you know, we, we are on the same team and, and you can't get past one of us by going to the other one. Um, is there are there any strategies that parents can use to prevent the children from setting them against one another like that? Is there a way we can form a sort of parenting cartel? Oh, um, hmm, I, well, I haven't thought about that, but uh, well, definitely, if parents somehow can form a cartel, they will be closer to um, to traditional families in the sense that they will play as one actor, no? And that will improve their bargaining position with respect to the children, no? Uh, so um, what I would say is that probably parents can do uh, sometimes the, the cartel, they can form the cartel, but sometimes they cannot. So if you go and see the, the literature on, on cartels and collusion, what we are going to see is that sometimes firms can form collusion and sustain collusion, but sometimes uh, these uh, collusion agreements break down. No? I think it would be very interesting to think about uh, specific strategies that parents could try to figure out to essentially sustain this uh, collusive front uh, um, against the children. No? Um, <laughs> I think that the other thing that's interesting here is you've made me think about the family as an economic system. And I think about outside market forces and, and you know, reading your paper about this evolution of families through time. Um, you know, I think marketing has reflected that, you know, products used to only be marketed to men. And then increasingly they've been marketed to women. And now there's a huge marketing machine targeting kids. If kids are now controlling more of the disposable income in homes, that makes sense. But I also wonder about like supply and demand pricing. You know, when I grew up, you could take piano lessons down the street from a lady for $10. And now I think that the costs of things like those supplemental extras, those enrichment activities, have become so high. And I wonder if that's in some way in response to this idea that more of that disposable income is being directed by kids and this competition between parents. Well, I, I think that I, I would agree with you in the in the first part for sure that essentially the, the changes in the in, in the power relationship uh, within the families 
that is reflected in the type of, of, of demand that you'll see in the market. And of course, marketing strategies will tend to reflect uh, th those things. And of course, if you think one step further, uh, well, uh, market prices will tend to adjust to those uh, changes in the structure of demand. And, and I guess in the second part of your question, what you have in mind is that if the demand of children are increasing their power within the family, the demand of things connected with children is going up. And as a consequence, the prices of those things uh, goes up too. So um, I think that at the logical level, that mechanism is, is, is correct. I cannot tell you in reality how important it is because maybe there are other reasons for those prices to go up. You know? and a higher fraction of the kids are going to college, higher fraction of kids are receiving a better education, and those better educations uh, sometimes include languages, piano lessons, uh, soccer lessons, so on and so forth. Uh, so, um, in some sense, you can think that this reflects the changes in the structure of the families, but it can also reflect the environment in which their kids are, are, are living. And if parents see that uh, more educated kids will do better, they can also react in investing more in piano lessons, uh, college, so on and so forth. So, there, these are two channels through which um, the amount that households are spending on, on their kids is, is, is going up. I have, uh, I think we have time for just one more question. Um, and, and I want to ask you something that, that goes a little beyond your paper and, and asks you to make a value judgment. Uh, I can see two versions of the story that you're telling. One version is that kids today are spoiled and they're getting lots of things that they don't need and things that are bad for them and lots of extra sugar and candy and all their whims are indulged. And, and we have a generation of spoiled children. And another version of the story is that kids who have formerly been a, a disempowered class within the family. Children who, who didn't have any power are now finally uh, sort of taking, uh, uh, the family is becoming more egalitarian and, and children who were disenfranchised are now having more of a voice and that that's a progressive development. Uh, does either of those seem right to you? Okay, I, I thought I understand that this is kind of beyond this, this paper. I think it's a very interesting uh um, question, I think that maybe uh, maybe it depends on which type of, of income levels of the household you are you are uh, trying to think about. Uh, the answer could be different. So probably if you are focusing on, on relatively poor households, maybe I would say this is a good development. Kids are going to, are, are going to get uh, good things that will be uh, useful for them. Uh, maybe if you are talking at the high end of the of the income distribution, well, maybe essentially what they're getting is to, they're, they're being spoiled. Uh, they're getting more than they need to their um, further development in, in their adulthood, no? So maybe the answer is not just one. It depends on which type of households you are focusing uh, to, you get a very different answer. And let me add one more thing there. It's, uh, we also talk a little bit in the paper about uh, punishments, essentially corporal punishments, and, and something that you observe in the in, in the data, and we also um, show in the paper is that uh, corporal punishments it's 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 going down a, a lot. So that's definitely, I think, a, a good development. No, so um, th there is no doubt about that dimension. But then in, in other dimensions, uh, kids are are being spoiled. So that's 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 true. It's a, it's a possible interpretation. I like that answer. Uh, <laughs> Gustavo Torres, thank you so much for joining us today. 
thank you very much. It was really nice to talk with you and well, very smart questions. So uh, I have to think a lot of future papers uh, starting from your questions. So thank you very much. It was really nice for me. Thank you. Thank you. That was Gustavo Torrance of Indiana University. Uh, he's the co-author of a paper called When Children Rule Parenting in Modern Families. We will link to it from our webpage. Uh, so, Gabe, you know, kind of I want to get one thing, kind of put it on the table and see what you think about this. You know, the paper looks at these theoretical models and looks back at a time where, you know, dad made all the decisions and it was like, ask dad what he thinks and had all the power. I mean, that wasn't better, right? I, I mean, from a, you know, feminist perspective, it was obviously worse. <laughs> but then also from a just like a guy perspective, obviously it was worse as well. Right, like, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, in what in in what way could it conceivably have been better? I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the solution of the kids sort of having you know more influence, more control. What it sounds like they're doing is just you know really looking at this dynamic between the parents as the the driving force of that. If the parents stop behaving like competitors, perhaps that dynamic could shift. But um, I'm not so sure that a single uh, CEO who makes all the decisions unilaterally would make for the happiest um, family either. It's just my opinion. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, obviously the solution can't be go back to the situation in which the whole family was dependent on the income of one person who happened to be the dude and and he gets to make all of the final decisions, right? That has to be off the table. I think then the question is, as like as with so many other things where, you know, the 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 new shape of the workforce and the, the like the feminist revolution has changed the way everything is set up. And now we are still adjusting to the consequences of that. Right. And this is one of those um, interesting little wrinkles where like, oh, yeah, of course, well, we, we, we want, you know, gender parity in, in salary. But and then it has all of these consequences that you didn't quite anticipate. And then you have to figure out how to handle those. And part of that is the parents have to figure out how to just not get sucked into these bidding wars, I assume. Yeah. And, you know, they he uses these pop culture references in the paper. They talk about Modern Family, for instance, and the competition between the parents on that show for the love and affection of their kids. But the one thing you never see in shows like Modern Family are real conversations about money. It's just not something that we talk about. I think we all think that what we do is unique to us and that perhaps other people do it differently because we just don't know. It's like a mystery, right? What other families do with their money. Yeah, I mean, that obviously is a, a, a big taboo, although um, I don't watch Modern Family. Um, I, I remember Roseanne was really good on money. Like mm -hmm. the, the that was, uh, you know, Roseanne was set up as a matriarchal household, a female dominated household. But the the negotiations between the two of them around money stuff um, were intense and funny and, and felt genuine to me at the time, although I wasn't married. So who knows? Um, so we're, we're talking about competition between parents. Uh, you and, and the father of your two sons uh, are, are not married at this point. How do you <laughs> how do you maintain a united front with them? when you're not living in the same house. I would love to say, oh, we do. It's no problem. We're basically best friends and we make all these financial decisions together. It's not the way it works at all. Um, you don't have any control over your ex's house <laughs> when you get divorced. There's a, um, And they don't have any control over yours and, and you would not want that. So over time, what we've sort of come up with as our uneasy truce around this is 
your family runs the way it runs and our family runs the way it runs. And it's kind of up to the kids to understand that it's different. And we're very, very lucky that we don't have dictatorial children because they really could have played us a lot over the years. And they, thank goodness, have not been doing so. Uh, so you don't see those competitive dynamics and, and the kids sort of exacerbate. Oh, no, they're that. there. The competitive <laughs> dynamics are there. I just don't think the kids um, necessarily see a benefit to playing us off of each other. Because I do, I do think that they have figured out that worst comes to worst, one of us will pick the, up the phone and check with the other one. So, um, no, but there's definitely some built-in competition there, no doubt. Hmm. Nickelodeon's got your preschoolers covered from sunrise to bedtime with four brand new podcasts. Grab their backpack and go on a culinary quest with Dora's Recipe for Adventure. Make game time great time with Let's Guess Who with Josh and Blue. And tuck in for adventure with Nickelodeon's Goodnight Bedtime Stories. Plus, we've got a brand new season of Storytime with Josh and Blue. Search Nickelodeon on your favorite podcast app to listen. Each week, we take a question from a listener, and uh, we do our best to answer it. If you have a question that you would like mom and dad are fighting to try to answer, uh, give us a call and leave a message. 424-255-7833. I'm going to say that number again. Call 424-255-7833 and tell us your problems. Today, we have a call from Crystal. I have four kiddos, three boys, ages 11, 8, and 5, and a baby girl. My boys fight all the time, which I know is common, but my older two fight especially, and the oldest is very mean to the middle brother, and I spend most of my time lecturing and talking to him about how important words are and how his words hurt, but it doesn't seem to be very effective. So I was wondering if you had any suggestions on how to build that relationship in a positive way. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Go. I know a lot about this. Um, My kids, my two boys, they're 18 months apart. My older son can be so cutting and mean to his brother. Like, he knows exactly the buttons to push. And I figured out a few years ago that it's actually about something. It's actually about control and agency and not having any power in your life when you're like a little kid and having this be the one thing that you can actually do that affects your environment when basically your parents or your teachers or your caregivers control every other aspect of your life. Um, So that was an important thing for me to keep in mind. Also, really parsing out the difference between sometimes brawls are kind of justifiable and sometimes they're not. So sort of that blanket always be nice doesn't really work because sometimes if you were actually in your older son's shoes, you might take his side. Like his brother might actually be being like super annoying and maybe being mean is the only way he knows to kind of fight back. So um, in order to sort of tamp down those things in my house, I definitely provide a lot of time for my older son to be alone and just say, like, if you, you know, feel the need to be mean, let's just get you out of the situation that's triggering you to be mean, you know, get you out of the button pushing opportunity. Um, I'm honest about the fact that I'm doing it for that reason and why. And I'm also honest with my younger son about the fact that 
his brother is pushing his buttons on purpose because it makes him feel good, not because he's mean, not because he wants to be abusive, but because there's something about it that's rewarding him. And so, you know, you need to remember that when he's doing that, that what he wants from you is to react a certain way. You are rewarding it. So as much as you can, try not to reward it by reacting. Uh, I think you'll find that it will you know, get tamped down. And it works. It really, really works. My older, my younger son has basically learned to brush it off a little bit. And guess what? The meanness has diminished by about 90% in my house. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, did, did you worry that you were telling the younger brother, uh, it's your fault you're making this happen? No, because I definitely framed it very honestly. I definitely said, you know, you know, you... Um, and by the way, I think it's also on. It's important to be to be honest uh, to your kids too about when it is partially their fault. So I don't want to say it's never his fault because he certainly can be, you know, from his older brother's perspective, really annoying. And I 100% agree with it with what his older brother is saying. But um, no, I mean, I think that being really straight and saying this isn't about you, but there is something you can do to change it, and the thing that you can do is just learn to just know that that's not what it is. It's about him, not you, and brush it off. And, you know, it's similar to that advice that you always got about bullies, right? Like, don't give them what they want, <laughs> and they'll knock it off. Same thing in your house. I, I like this advice. I have sort of the equivalent response, but from the perspective of, of a parent with younger kids. Um, you know, my daughter is six, and she's mostly very nice to her little brother, but there's definitely times when she provokes him or goes at him, and sometimes it's just because he's driving her nuts. What I think it has to do with is less what you describe as wanting control over the environment and more for her about feeling neglected, feeling left out, feeling as though, you know, she was the beloved only child and then this little kid came along and took all of the attention and all of the affection. And usually she responds to that quite maturely and then sometimes she acts out. And I think that's a really natural thing to do um, for an older sibling. Uh, and and I I noticed from the caller that uh, there's a there's a little baby in the house, which is always a time when like all of the kids are adjusting to a new configuration and probably getting a lot less attention from their parents than they are used to. Um, and so I wonder if the older son is turning on the the middle son uh, because really what he's mad about is the baby. Um, hmm. Because having a new baby is just the meanest thing you can ever do to a child, I think. <laughs> um, it's just such a dick move. And <laughs> so if, if I were in that situation, I, I would try to, at times when the older son is not acting out and is not bullying the middle one, uh, I would just try to show him a little bit of extra love and affection and give him some treats and let him know that, like, you're still his mom and, and you still love him and he's still your main guy and give him lots of kisses and um, see if that helps at all. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I mean, these are hard problems to solve because parental time and affection is actually a limited resource, unfortunately. It is. And they're all competing for it. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're back to competition. It's a real thing. <laughs> it all comes back to competition. Yep. Great. Um, Crystal, I hope that was helpful. Uh, other listeners, if you have a question that you would like us to address, leave a message, 424-255-7833. So my daughter Eliza is in kindergarten now. And, and one thing that that means apparently is that she has homework. 
Uh, she brings home a math puzzle every week and, and we're doing the reading challenge where she has to read a bunch of books. And, and obviously, uh, over the next, you know, 15 years, this homework thing is only going to become a bigger and bigger part of her life. And, and on the one hand, there's something nice about it, which is that she is learning stuff and the learning doesn't just stay isolated in the schoolroom. And, and her mom and I get to be part of her learning about it. And I get to be involved in this very exciting process where she learns to read and the world of reading opens up to her and she learns how to do math and you get to see her mind expand to take on these new concepts and processes. And it's, you know, it's lovely. And she doesn't hate it yet. She hasn't yet learned that homework is actually terrible. And, and so she doesn't like complain about it. It feels like it's a very grown up thing to do. And so sometimes it's like, yay, we get to do your math challenge. Hooray. Um, and then at the same time, she has two parents who both have full-time jobs. And we have this complicated schedule where sometimes I'm home at dinner time and sometimes my wife is home at dinner time and occasionally we're both home at dinner time and sometimes she's with a babysitter. And, and I don't really understand how homework is supposed to fit into our <laughs> lives as an activity or, or when or at what time during the day or, or who is supposed to be responsible for like tracking it and, and making sure that it gets done. Um, and I thought I would ask you because your kids are older and, and I'm sure at this point they are in charge of their own homework. Uh, but when your kids were younger, I, I'm curious as to how you dealt with this and, and what you did and, and what you do now. Well, um, I suppose congratulations that your daughter's getting homework in kindergarten. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I feel like perhaps it's good practice for the work ethic that will be required ahead but for real, like what kind of learning could be so important that you, you, you would be imposing on the schedule of a family with like a really young child? I mean, to me, it's just that's kind of the conundrum with homework is that I've always understood that certain kinds of things need definitely need practice. Math problems to me is one of those things like you should bring home something at night just to practice that thing so it sticks or foreign language like the vocabulary, um, you know, flashcards. I've always understood the value of those. But even with a kid in eighth grade and a kid who's a sophomore in high school, I sometimes look at what they are sent home with and am blown away by what appears to be a total lack of necessity to do this work in addition to all of the other things they have to do and all the other things we have to do as a family. Um, my older son, Henry, has always been just great about coming home with what he needs to do, finding the time to do it, getting it done. We've very rarely had any conversations about homework. He just seems to be able to manage it. My younger son, Teddy, is a homework disaster. He will straight up lie and say he doesn't have homework when he does. He will um, do the very, very minimum, sit and do it. But I'll look at it and just think like, there's just no way this is what they want you to do. And there's very little I've learned that we can actually do about it aside from literally sitting down next to him as he is going through this pile of work. And that is not possible. As you pointed out, my husband and I also both have full-time day jobs, plus we make podcasts at home. So we have this business at home on the side. And it is really, really, really hard. So for me, it's about prioritizing. When do I need to get involved and actually check in and make sure a project is, you know, kind of getting done? But this year I put in a new measure, which um, I don't know. I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea, but it's working 
which is that I basically hired a really smart high school boy who lives down the street to be in charge of whether or not my younger son does his homework or not. <laughs> um, this boy knows how to navigate like the school system that you log into and look at assignments. So he, he can't game it uh, with this boy the way that he can with me. Teddy how, can't. How old is this boy? Uh, he is 17, 16 or 17. He's a senior, oh. very, very, very bright. And my son really looks up to him. And um, that has proven to be the magic sauce is that this is an older kid. And my son is very motivated by relationships, like appearing to be cool with older kids. So he's willing to do like stuff and be diligent for this kid in a way he's never been for us. This, so, is, a, this is a brilliant solution. So <laughs> the, this older kid is is... In addition to like taking on the responsibility of all the checking and the monitoring and the measuring, uh, this older kid is sort of modeling the process of being on top of your shit. Yeah, exactly. This older kid is uh, totally on top of his shit and he will sit with him. I call him the life coach. Mm. <laughs> He's like the teenage life coach. He'll sit with him in like those basic executive function tasks, like making lists of what you have to do, being aware of what's more important you know, I don't know if you're where your kids go to school, they're going to be subject to like a block system where they have like an A day and a B day. I don't so know what that homework, is. It sounds terrifying. It, it, You know, it's not something that I it's their job to deal with it. So it's it's but it does sort of add this layer of complication. They have some classes on the A days and some classes on the B days. So they get a homework assignment on the A day that's not due until two days from now. You know, do you do the homework that's due the next day or do you do the homework of the stuff that you just learned that day? That's a whole other layer um, that this 17-year-old kid has done a good job navigating and can teach my son to cope with. And so, yeah, I mean, basically for the price of a reasonable babysitter, um, I've outsourced this whole process. That's been our family's solution. I don't know if that's what that says about us, but it's working. I, I, like, I think my life would have been really different if my parents had found and hired a guy like that for me. I, the executive function stuff that you describe, I just about now have it down enough <laughs> to hold down a job. Barely, right? Uh, yeah. Me too. <laughs> in, in that way where like when you have the kids and the job, then you desperately need to learn that stuff or you will literally die. So right. I've just about got it down. And like now that we have, you know, phones, then I can have a to-do list on the phone that like, and I can write down things wherever I am on the phone or set reminders on the phone. Like if I didn't have that stuff, I remember being in high school and having a little notebook that I was supposed to write down all of my homework assignments in. I, I and you just, didn't, right? I was just terrible at the whole thing. And yeah, if there had too. been a guy who was like, he was like me, but he was a little older and he was really on top of his shit and he would show me how you like, you just have a little system and it makes it really easy and then you can get your stuff done and then you can go and do something you want to do. I just, I feel like my whole adulthood as well would have been completely different because I would have been on top of my shit from the beginning. God. Yeah. I'm yeah. so envious of your kid now. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing, the other component of it that's been really great is that I figured out a long time ago that trying to make a kid who doesn't have any of these skills do stuff right when they get home from school, it's just not going to happen. So we have just become a lot more flexible about schedule and going to bedtime and all that stuff. So typically he walks up the street to work with this boy, Sam, at like 8, 830 at night. So it's like after dinner. Um, you know, maybe post shower, maybe pre shower, whatever. But like, it is later at night, so he gets to come home, chill, play his PC games or whatever he wants to do to sort of unwind. Kind of then be with the family, do dinner, and then 
get his shit done with his kids. So it's like a nice way to sort of cap off the day. And by the way, also gets him out of the house for an hour and a half before bedtime. So that has its own benefits in its own way. And it's also a hang for him, presumably. Like Absolutely. He, he's going to hang with Sam. It feels very, very adult. And he is very cool about like walking up there. And, you know, Sam sometimes drives him back, which is like a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is a brilliant solution, and I really look forward to implementing it with my daughter in like 10 years. But until then, <laughs> uh, I, it's going to be complicated, I think. Yeah, it is. It's uh, going to suck. Sorry. Any, yeah, well, any, <laughs> any advice for, for what I can do before she's old enough to have a, a teenage life coach? I don't know. I mean, I, I think the whole thing with homework, competition to do well in school, I think it's probably a lot more intense where you live than it is where I live. Um, but I would just say, decide what's important. Don't make them be perfect on every piece of work they bring home and believe them when they say, you know what, this one is just busy work, but this one is actually important. You know, you ha if you don't prioritize, you're never going to have a real meal ever, ever <laughs> as an adult. Mm. So, and I think that's important. I think it's more important to sit and have a nice dinner than it is to bring back a perfect math worksheet to school. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. All right. Thank you. This has been very helpful. Let's move on to uh, recommendations. What do you have to recommend? I've got two, if that's okay. Is that you Sure, sure. Recommend away. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Number one, um, for the pubescent or teenage girl in your life, I'm sure many boys would enjoy it too. My So-Called Life, the one-season TV show that was on ABC in the 90s. Love My So-Called Life. Our producer, totally Zach, is, is pumping up. his fists in the booth as well. <laughs> it totally holds up, and it embodies everything that your kid needs to know today from like the breaking up with friends to um, the parental angst. It is so well done. It totally holds up. It's available on ABC.com for free or Amazon Prime. I think it's available on Hulu too. So and, I have a um, question. Do, do your son, yeah. have your sons watched My So-Called Life? Yeah, my older son has. My older son's really interested in film and filmmaking, so he'll watch anything and he but really liked it. He, he liked it because yeah. I, I were, you know, someone and it... Someone described our generation, the generation that you and I share, as Generation Catalano. <laughs> and I think it's... We should be so lucky, though, Gabe. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> but but I'm suspicious of anything that is so... Like, it's as though if I... Like, okay, I tried to play... You know, my kids listen to music sometimes. We listen to music around the house, and usually what they want to listen to is the little boy wants to listen to Rafi, and the girl wants to listen to the Moana soundtrack. And I can listen to both of those things, you know, one or 2,000 times. But at a certain point, I try to play them something else. And I decided that I would get them really into the first Violent Femmes album, the one with mm -hmm. Blister in the Sun at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And... It's really good. It's still really good. But anything that's like precisely for people who are exactly my age, I'm a little mm -hmm. suspicious of as a like a cultural totem. And I worry that my so-called life is the same thing. But are, are, what you're saying is that it still holds up with today's generation of children? It does. And it's got a different feel now because you think about Ricky, the character, her gay friend, sure. Angela's gay friend totally different seeing that from today's perspective and it's really informative for my kids to see that storyline and how it played out like in the 90s you know plus you have all the Jordan Catalano stuff and as an adult watching it 
he's so obviously like a clueless dick. Mm. And I remember being in high school watching it and thinking like, oh, I totally get it. He's so dreamy. You know, it is a whole different perspective. And there's one other little bonus. um, And I've said this on my own podcast before because I believe that it's true. If you watch My So-Called Life, the writing for the inner monologue for Claire Dane's character, Angela, sounds exactly like Sarah Koenig's narration style on Serial. <laughs> so I have come to believe that her, the writing for that character's inner thinking and what we sort of hear the voiceover work has tremendously influenced a lot of the audio that we listen to today. So oh, watch out for that. Inter- very interesting. <laughs> I'll keep the second one really quick. Go, um, if go. you have a kid who's a gamer, like get your kid to try to teach you how to play one of their video games. I sat this weekend and tried to learn how to play Battlefield 1. My 15-year-old tried to teach me. It was hapless and hysterical, and it's really fun that he is so much better at something than I am. It's fun for him, and it was fun for me. That is a great idea. I look forward to sucking <laughs> at a video game with my kids. <laughs> You're going to suck, uh, just FYI. Yep, I, I, I'm fine with that. Um My recommendation is a book. It's a picture book. Um, It's called I Dissent. Ruth Bader Ginsburg Makes Her Mark. It's a picture book about uh, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's by Debbie Levy. It's illustrated by Elizabeth Baddeley or Baddeley. And it's in the category of books about famous activist women, which is happily a rather a crowded category these days. Um, And that's nice. And it's great that we are teaching kids about uh, women's history and progressive history. Uh, But there's something about this one that is, I think, particularly fun and and is a reason why Eliza really likes it beyond the like, here's a great woman who became very powerful and successful, uh, which is that it's about arguing. It's about lawyers and the courts and it's about the value of like arguing and debate and challenging things and saying, no, that's wrong. I disagree. And here's why. Um, and it it frames Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life story around that premise that she's always like achieving success by arguing, which when you're a little kid and like very often you get told like, no, don't argue. This is just the way it is. Um, it, it's, it, there's something neat and, and lovable about reframing that as, uh, well, no, actually arguing is one of the ways in which we make change happen. And one of the ways in which we make things better for people. Um, so the book is I Dissent Ruth Bader Ginsburg Makes Her Mark. It's by Debbie, Debbie Levy. RBG is just so cool right now, too. Yeah, she really is. Absolutely. <laughs> and, um, you know, wishing her long life and good health. Do you ever give in to your kids when they make a really good argument when you initially said no to something, if they've argued it well? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, Eliza is just about old enough that she can start doing that now. I feel like I've maybe done it once or twice. Uh I should make a point of doing that because when you phrase it like that, it makes me think, yes, that is obviously a good thing to do. Is, <laughs> is that a thing that you make a practice of? Yeah, because I, I learned a long time ago that some of the, the shit that I tell my kids is just the way it is. It's just arbitrary. It's actually not just the way it is. It's yeah. just something I've decided. Yeah. <laughs> so if they can make a compelling case that actually has value, I will sometimes reward that by saying, you know what? You, you made a good case. And it, it you know... It, it gives you a lot of credibility when you um, aren't always a dictator. That's that's what I've learned. This is great. I like that. Okay. That's our show. Um, 
Remember, please like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. And uh, you can email us at mom and dad at slate.com. Uh, you can uh, give us a review on iTunes if you like the show, or, or you can email us to tell us why you don't like the show if you don't like the show. If you like what we're doing, tell a friend. And if you don't like what we're doing, you know, probably keep it to yourself. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. See our full roster of shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show is produced by Zach Dinerstein. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks to our guest today, Gustavo Torrance. Uh, and thank you, Rebecca Lavoie, for co-hosting with me. It was really, really fun. Thanks for having me. Rebecca is the host of two podcasts, Crime Writers On, and These Are Their Stories, a podcast about law and order. You can find both of them in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, you can find out all about her at crimewriterson.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.